This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. You can find it on page 284 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Brian. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at the church. Our scripture reading this morning uh, wasn't very long, but maybe felt long. And unless you're a contractor, a mathematician, or an architect, uh, you may have been like me and struggled to kind of visualize what was going on. Your mind may have wandered off wondering, like, what even is a cubit? Um, I learned that a cubit is a unit of measurement about a foot and a half long, if that helps you at all. I'm not exactly sure why I got this passage um, this morning about the building of the temple. Maybe it's because I'm functioning as the point person for our making room project and the mess we've got going on out there. Uh, You may know that we really started this project really back in 2018. It was around that time, maybe even a little bit before, that we started to realize that we needed a plan. We were turning 10 years old as a church And we started dreaming about what the future might look like. A house came up for sale next door, a couple doors down. We bought it, and instead of just immediately renovating it or tearing it down, we decided that it would be wise to just kind of pause and come up with a plan. So we called Dean Violetta, who's uh, the architect who helped us with the original renovation of the church, who's now the full-time architect at the Cincinnati Zoo. So I always joke, if our kid rooms look like zoo enclosures, that's why. Um, So we called Dean, and we called Jeff Reichert, our general contractor. We put together a master plan team with folks representing a variety of ministries. 
uh, here at the church. And so for about a year, we met at least monthly uh, to pray and dream and sketch out a plan. You can actually find that master plan on the Making Room website if you want to learn more about kind of how we got to where we are today. So we work on our master plan. We have our 10-year celebration over at the 20th century in Oakley and then global pandemic, right? We figure out how to do live stream and uh, do all kinds of different things. And we come out of that and we get back to our plan. At that point, we start working on both the Making Room generosity campaign and meeting with the architects to get plans for the new building. Now, I got to be a part of a lot of meetings with the builder, the master planner, and the architects. And I would say there was probably about 30% of the stuff that they were talking about that I just had no idea. Uh, I could not understand at all. It was like um, reading about cubits here. It was essentially like a foreign language. Uh, And there were times when the discussion got so technical, like I knew they were speaking English, but the words were just completely over my head. I had no idea what they meant. But so I got to learn and I am learning. I know the church stuff and I'm glad that the builder and the architects know the technical stuff. So if you found your mind reeling with today's scripture reading, I get it, right? Verse 14 is where we read to, but really we could have read several chapters, starting with chapter 5, which is essentially, uh, the chapter before this is essentially like a purchase contract for a whole bunch of cedar between King Solomon and a guy named uh, Hiram, king of Tyre. And then there's the part that we read from chapter 6, then the remainder of chapter 6 continues with descriptions of the temple. Then chapter 7 describes the building of Solomon's palace, which he built right next door to the temple. And then back to the temple, uh, describing the furnishings. And then in chapter 8, the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple. Um, But we actually don't have any dedicated sermons on any of those passages. Pastor Josh is going to pick up for us next week in chapter 8 with verse 22. All that is to say, if you found yourself a little lost in your mind wandering with our scripture reading this morning, uh, it could have been worse. We could have read all of those three and a half chapters of this sort of thing. Uh, now, before you get angry with me, I'm just, uh, all I'm trying to say is these are the kind of passages, right, just honestly, that we tend to skip or skim when we're going through our Bible reading plans, right? Um, we even just selected a portion of this passage this morning. But since all scriptures God breathed, I think we can even learn and be encouraged by this stuff this morning. You know, I was tempted to put up renderings of the temple, what it would have looked like up on the screen. And I say what it would have looked like because uh, the temple is long gone. It stood for about 400 years, um, but then was destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple was rebuilt later on, not in all of its glory. Um, And that was the temple that was around in Jesus's time. But then that temple also was destroyed around 70 AD. Um, And it's thought that all that's left of that second temple Um, is some foundation stones, what's called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall uh, in Jerusalem. You may have seen pictures of it, and that's at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And then above it sits the Dome of the Rock um, with the mosque up there. So I'm not going to show you a picture of the temple. You can Google that. In fact, if you do um, go searching for this this afternoon, if you're curious, you might find um, the replica of Solomon's Temple in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It was built by a billionaire pastor and media tycoon. Um, It's complete with a helicopter landing pad on it. Um, So it's not totally historically accurate. Solomon's temple did not, in fact, have a helicopter landing pad. Um, But the reason I think it's sideways energy to look at pictures or sketches or to get into the weeds in that regard, particularly the inside the temple, uh, is that what we have in our scripture here is really what, what most Israelites had to go on. Only a handful of people ever went in the temple anyway, and those were the priests. So if you're like me and you can't like picture this very well just from the reading in your head and you want to look it up when you go home, go for it. But we're not going to get into the weeds of what the temple looked like per se. We're going to look at four things that we can learn from the text this morning. Now, don't worry. 
just because there's four points instead of three points, it's not going to be 25% longer. (laughs) Okay. Um, But there's probably innumerable lessons that we can learn uh, and a myriad of directions that we could have gone this morning. But here we are. We're going to do four things. First, we're going to look at how the description of the temple roots us in the story of redemption. We're going to see how it teaches us that God is beautiful, how it points us to the temple, that is Jesus, and then how it gives us hope for the future. All right, so let's kick in here. First, the description of the temple roots us in the story of God. In the very first verse of chapter 6, you might see there, we were given a date. It says, in the 480th year after the Exodus and in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. One thing that is kind of unique about the Old and New Testaments, particularly when compared to other sacred texts, is the profoundly historical nature of the whole of it. That is, the story is rooted in history, right? These are dates and people that mentioned famously, right? Quirinius, when governor of Syria that we hear about every year at Christmas time. Real people in real time. Uh, the writer of 1 Kings is pointing back here to the definitive moment in Israel's history when God brought them out of slavery. By naming this date, he's bringing to mind God's redemption and all that comes with the Exodus story, right? As soon as he says this, everybody's thinking about the story. The temple here is inaugurating a new era, the fulfillment really of the promise of a place for God's people. The tabernacle, the mobile worship space during the Exodus is now obsolete and the temple is here. Not only does this passage root us in the story of Exodus, but it also reminds us of the Garden of Eden. We didn't read this part, but the rest of chapter 6 talks about the wood carvings of fruits and vegetables and flowers, just like in the Garden of Eden. And then there's the cherubim. It's the plural word of the Hebrew word for angels. These cherubim guard the inner sanctuary, just like the angels that guarded the way back to Eden. There were carvings of pomegranates and figs symbolizing the fruitfulness of Eden and God's provision, probably also reminding us of the promised land, you know, where there is plenty, a land flowing with milk and honey and all of that. Then there's a whole section about a bronze sea that brings to mind uh, in our imaginations God's creation. And there's so much more. The temple, in a sense, is a physical representation meant to retell and root us in the story of God's world and redemption. You know, well-designed buildings tell a story. And architects are often concerned with what a space communicates and what it means. Design is informed by the aim or the purpose of the space. For instance, many churches like ours are designed with extraordinary high ceilings, right, to draw our eyes and our minds up. And then there's even a higher part up here, I don't know if you've ever noticed, that's that's like the keel of a ship. So if you turned a boat upside down, right, uh, it's the church upside down, it would look like the keel of a boat. The area you're sitting in architecture is called, uh, church architecture is called the nave, which comes from the Latin for, for ship. So if you flip the building upside down, um, it's like we would all be in a big old ark, right? Which reminds us of God's preservation of Noah and how the church is like an ark carrying us through the storm. You can look at things around the building, like in quantities of 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples. You can look for things in threes, Uh, to remind us of the Trinity. You know, I've probably just given everybody permission to just let your mind wander for the rest of the morning looking around at the building. But all that is to say the temple and even our church building and buildings today are meant to root us in the story of scripture and remind us that we ourselves are in this story. And maybe you've noticed that there was a kind of jarring transition in this passage that we read this morning in verse 11. We're going along with all this description of the building. uh, And then we come along to... um, Verse 11, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. The word of the Lord all of a sudden. What does the Lord say? 
It says, concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. We're reminded here of God's covenant, God's promises. As Presbyterians, we hang on to something called covenant theology, basically to the idea that it is God's promise that is the way that he has dealt with the world and with his people. God's covenant can be traced through the Bible from creation to the promise that their seed will crush the head of the serpent, and then to Noah, and then to Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and eventually David, Solomon's father. You know, the promise to David is found in 2 Samuel 7. You can turn there if you want. 2 Samuel 7. We'll just turn there because I think this is part of what we're, we're reminded of here. We're supposed to be reminded of when we read in 1 Kings. So 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8, we read this. Now, therefore, uh, thus you shall say to my servant David. That's the Lord speaking to Nathan. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. That's a reference to when David was called um, uh, to be king. And I have been with you, whenever you, wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Right? So the covenant here includes what? That there will be a prince over the people. God says, I will be with you. Cut off your enemies, bringing peace. God says he'll make him a great name. He'll give him a place where the people won't be disturbed. He promises peace and rest. Verse 11, after David said he wanted to build God a house, which is what Solomon did here, right? What we're reading about this morning. God says to David, I'm going to build you a house. Verse 12, David's offspring will reign. In verse 13, the offspring will reign forever. An heir will be son and God will be father. The steadfast love of God will not depart from this heir. The kingdom and the throne shall be forever. There's so, so much more that could be said about God's covenant, but suffice it to say for now that all this stuff here is intended to ring the bells of Eden and Exodus and the covenant and more. It roots us in the story. All right, we need to move on. Secondly, God is beautiful. So we read the description of the temple. Even if we don't know what a cubit is or don't have a mind that can construct these things in our head, we can at least start to get an idea of how beautiful the temple was. Cedar, gold. It says everything was gold. The carvings of palm trees and flowers and cherubim. It was a beautiful sight to behold. You know, if you've had the opportunity to travel, you know, what's on the the must-do list, right? 
you go see the thing, right? We call it sightseeing. You know, if you go to Disney World, you've got to get your picture in Main Street with Cinderella's castle in the background. If you're in Paris, you go see the Eiffel Tower. If you're in London, you go see Big Ben and Westminster Abbey. In Jerusalem, you go to the Temple Mount and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You go to Bangkok, you go to the Grand Palace. In Rome, you go to the Colosseum, right? Someone comes to Cincinnati, maybe you take them to Union Terminal to see the Rotunda, right? Beautiful, beauty, architectural and artistic or musical or natural or whatever, Beauty captivates us and draws our attention heavenward. We go see the sights. It brings us to wonder. It reminds me of a story that Henry Nouwen tells in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Henry Nouwen was a priest who had served as an academic at Harvard for years, but then who chose to move um, to a, a community with the organization called Larch and care for folks with disability at a home called Daybreak uh, in Toronto. Anyway, Nowen said that he'd always been captivated by Rembrandt's um, painting of the prodigal son, but he had never seen the original because it is on display in the Hermitage of St. Petersburg and at what at the time was the Soviet Union. The painting was acquired by Catherine the Great in 1766, and there it hangs in St. Petersburg. So the first time that Henry Nowen had encountered this painting, he saw it as a poster on someone's door, and he said he was just struck by it. He said, I kept staring at the poster and finally stuttered, it's beautiful, more than beautiful. It makes me want to cry and laugh at the same time. I can't tell you what I feel as I look at it, but it touches me deeply. So from that moment, and he saw that poster, he was captivated by this painting. So fast forward, Henry was invited by some friends to travel to the Soviet Union with them, which got him that much closer to the painting. Well, to make a long story even longer, he had a connection and he worked it out so he could see the painting. And not only that, he worked it out so that he could spend time with it, reveling in its beauty. Here's how he described it. He said, while many tourist groups with their guides came and left in rapid succession, I sat on one of the red velvet chairs in front of the painting and just looked. Now I was seeing the real thing, not only the father embracing his child come home, but also the elder son and the three other figures. It was huge work on oil, on canvas, eight feet high by six feet wide. It took me a while to simply be there, simply absorbing what I, that I was truly in the presence of what I had so long hoped to see, simply enjoying the fact that I was all by myself sitting in the hermitage in St. Petersburg, looking at the prodigal son for as long as I wanted. Without my realizing it, more than two hours had gone by. And then he shares about having coffee and, and lunch with the curators. And he says, after coffee, I returned to the painting for another hour until the guard and the cleaning lady let me know that in no uncertain terms, the museum was closed and that I had been there long enough. He even went back several days later for more. Well, what's the point? I think Henry Nouwen's uh, story here is a great example of how beauty teaches us that God is beautiful. And when we encounter the beautiful, we get a glimpse of God and we get lost in wonder, you know, further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis says. During Advent, I like to mash up Charles Wesley's hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, with his hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, right? Because the latter is about looking forward to Jesus' coming at Christmas. There's two verses to that one. Um, but then the, the other one, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, um, points to the restoration of all creation and the coming of the kingdom in all its fullness. So it kind of tells the whole story if you put it together. Um, so come that long expected Jesus and then some verses from Love Divine. And here's how Wesley finishes uh, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. This is one of his 6,500 hymns, as Josh noted last week. And arguably, it's, it's one of his greatest hits. But this is how Love Divine ends. It says, uh, changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, 
lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's how Wesley pictures what it will be like in the end. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. Lost in wonder. And this is what the temple, what great art, what all things bright and beautiful do, right? We get lost in wonder, love, and praise of God. So, counterpoint. If you're like me, maybe you've got a little voice echoing from your responsible, thrifty forebearers that says, yeah, but isn't beauty expensive, wasteful? Art and feasting and music, beauty, it's all excessive, right? Like, not useful. Well, there's actually a similar argument that was made and codified in the Gospels. One account is in Mark 14. Jesus is in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper at the table. A woman approaches him with a flask of really expensive perfume. Maybe you know the story. She opens the jar, breaks it open, pours it on Jesus, and immediately the grumbling begins. People are saying, why was this oil wasted like that? Could have been sold and given to the poor. They scolded this woman for what she had done. But then Jesus comes to her defense. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her just like we just did, right? Is beauty excessive, wasteful? Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Not when it's done for him, because God is beautiful. Beauty draws us to get lost in wonder, love, and praise of him. Space matters, right? It's not everything, but it is something. You can worship anywhere, but the space makes a difference, right? We joke that our sermons got automatically 20% better when we moved in here, uh, since this space is so much more awe-inspiring and beautiful than a school cafetorium, uh, you can still maybe faintly smell the fries and, you know, pizza from the week. Some of you all remember that. You know, I don't know about you, but I am so grateful to, for the folks that invested in this building 100 years ago, making a beautiful building that we are the beneficiaries of today. You know, hopefully we're carrying on that tradition, not only creating what we hope is a beautiful, expanded Space, but more importantly, creating a beautiful community, a beautiful orthodoxy and a beautiful, rich community life so that folks might see us, what we're doing here, and they themselves get lost in, uh, in wonder, love, and praise of God. Our God is beautiful. Thirdly, this description of the temple points us to Jesus, the temple. The temple and the tabernacle before it was where God was said to dwell, right? in the space between the wings of the cherubim on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant set in the Holy of Holies, which we read here was 20 by 20 by 20. It was a cube in the center of Solomon's temple. There's the tabernacle, the temple, but then came Jesus. Listen to John 1. We read this a bunch uh, during Christmas. So just last month we heard it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus is the temple. More explicitly in John 2, Jesus had just driven out the money changers and the merchants in the temple there in Jerusalem. When the people asked Jesus for a sign that would prove that he had the authority to do that, he said this. He said, destroy this temple. Again, it's not Solomon's temple. He was in uh, the rebuilt temple, the same site. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
They said, uh, this is taking like 46 years to rebuild this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But then John adds and explains what Jesus is saying. He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he'd said this. R.C. Sproul commented, Christ is the temple and all men are commanded to come to him in order to worship and serve the one true God. Jesus is the temple. And check this out. By extension, then we, his church, are his body too. Kind of mixing metaphors. But in Ephesians 2, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Mixing metaphors, citizens, members, building blocks. And he's kind of extending the metaphor, right? Jesus is the temple, the cornerstone. We, the church, his body are the temple as well. And although building and body are kind of mixing metaphors, Peter Lightheart notes in his commentary on these temple passages from 1 Kings, that Solomon's temple is described with body words in Hebrew, words that um, say that the temple has a face and shoulders and ribs. These are the words used to describe Solomon's temple. You know, as Josh mentioned last week, we're at the high point of Solomon's reign here. There's peace and prosperity almost beyond belief, right? The people are faithful. And yet even last week, we got an unsteady feeling. Even if we aren't familiar with Solomon's story, right? We can feel the storm clouds kind of brewing on the horizon, And even in the reiteration of the covenant, we see an if-then statement that gives us pause in terms of trying to keep this uh, as humans. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word. I will dwell with you and won't forsake my people. It's a high calling. No specific spoilers here, but we'll see soon how things quickly unravel here for Solomon and how even now it's so blatantly obvious that we ourselves are crippled and cursed with the human propensity to mess things up as Francis Spufford defines sin. That's what it takes to keep the covenant, right? Walk in the statutes, obey the rules, keep all the commandments, walk in them. Who will rescue us? Who can do this? Peter Lightheart says, what the law cannot achieve the Davidic promise ultimately brings to pass. For the church serves a king who obeys and guards all the commandments of the Lord and who secures the Lord's perpetual presence within his church. Thanks be to God that we have Jesus, the temple who fulfills the covenant on our behalf, which lastly gives us hope for our future. I had a wise friend and mentor challenge me a while back to read through the gospel of John slowly. And be open to seeing myself as the one that Jesus loves. This is because he saw rightly that this is a struggle for me to feel the love of God and the love of others, for that matter. Um, It's taking me a long time. I dip in and out of this little project, reading other scriptures as well. But the other day I was reading in John 14, where Jesus says this. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
the Father has a house and has plenty of rooms for all of us. Jesus is preparing a place for you. I tell this story all the time. I apologize if you've heard it before, but shortly after Cheryl and I were married, uh, we worked at a camp and retreat center in eastern Kentucky, and we'd have groups in for retreats uh, pretty much every weekend. And part of my job as the program director was to go around to all the cottages and cabins and do things like sweep the porch, stock the firewood, make sure that there were snacks and drinks in the fridge, check all the light switches and lamps to make sure that the light bulbs worked, uh, and so on. And I can't tell you how annoyed I was at these chores that to me seemed really trivial. But our director explained to me over and over and over again until my hard heart finally cracked open to receive it that those seemingly trivial tasks are like what Jesus is doing for us here, right? Preparing a place. You know, for us at camp, it was removing an obstacle to grace so that people could settle in and experience God on retreat instead of, you know, showing up late at night on a Friday and it's dark, flipping a light switch and then having the light not come on. And now instead of encountering God, They're having to figure that out. So the ministry of hospitality, like you opening your home for community groups or having people over for meals, it requires a lot of like little tasks that seem trivial to us, but it's the ministry of Jesus preparing a place for us. We follow him. We prepare a place for others to experience his grace. Jesus is preparing a place for you. And not only that, it says he'll come back and get you so that we will be where he is, so that we will be with him. You know, this is some of what I struggle to believe, that Jesus wants to be with me, that he's preparing a place for me. But friends, if you are in Christ, this is true. And it gives us hope, because not only is Jesus with us now through his spirit as we are on the way, but he's preparing a place for you, coming back to get us, whether that's When our mortal life is over or whether he comes back before then, he's coming back. And this is what it's going to look like. This is from Revelation 21. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and each shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And listen to the temple language here. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That is where Solomon's temple points us. That is where we're headed. Jesus is preparing a place for you. For you. Now, in the meantime, Jesus is the temple. We are his body, the temple of the Spirit. May we... Be a beautiful community that gives a sliver of a glimpse of the beauty of God. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing. Uh, We'll come to the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are beautiful beyond what we can comprehend. And we admit that we too often ignore, oftentimes unintentionally, all the ways that you try to get our attention. Our hearts are too often cold our eyes closed, our ears shut to the beauty that surrounds us. We aren't lost in wonder, love, and praise, but rather lost in our distractions, crippled by our anxieties, focused on the worries of today. Open our eyes that we might see your beauty. Thank you that you root us in a story and that you sent your son to dwell among us so that we could see the glory of God manifest in our midst. 
And not only that, that you're preparing a place for us that we might be with you where you are. And as we wait in this meantime, we pray that you would give us hope. Grant us such a sense of your presence and empowering of your Holy Spirit that we, your church, your body, might manifest the love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, that we might be a beautiful community that believes rightly and loves faithfully. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.